0: So today we're going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, and I'm going to be reading from Digha Nikaya, number 22. This is from the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. We have a nice guest here. (laughs) And this is uh, section 5 on the Four Noble Truths so this is in the section that discusses uh, mind objects. Again monks, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the Four Noble Truths. How does he do so? Here a monk knows as it really is, this is suffering He knows, as it really is, this is the origin of suffering. He knows, as it really is, this is the cessation of suffering. He knows, as it really is, this is the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. And what, monks, is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress are suffering. Being attached to the unloved is suffering. Being separated from the loved is suffering. Not getting what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates of affected by clinging, are suffering. So the Buddha is talking about the Four Noble Truths here. So the first two have to do with suffering and the other two have to do with the cessation of suffering. So whenever the Buddha talks about uh, different aspects of the Dhamma, he's always talking about these two things. Suffering and the cessation of suffering. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about dependent origination. And in dependent origination, what we see is how suffering arises. And through its reversal and through its letting go and abandoning, we also understand how suffering ceases. The causes and conditions for that suffering how it ceases. So today, as an understanding of, um, or to get a better understanding of dependent origination, to prepare you for that, I thought it best to discuss the four noble truths, because that is really what the Buddha has talked about over his many, many years and decades of teaching in his life. Everything that he's talked about in the suttas has been an elaboration of these four noble truths in one way or the other. So in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the Buddha talks about the four foundations of mindfulness. That is to say, the four aspects of observation on which the mind rests. It could be the body and different aspects of the body, different understandings of the body, like How the body is made up of different organs? How the body is made up of the different elements? It could be in relation to feeling, in relation to sensations, it could be in relation to mind, or mind sets like a contracted mind. He knows a contracted mind as contracted mind, he knows a distracted mind as a distracted mind, he knows an exalted mind as an exalted mind. And so on. Now the Buddha, and then of course the last is mind objects or dhammas, phenomena. And so these phenomena uh, include the five aggregates, seven enlightenment factors, and the four noble truths, among others. Oh, including the five hindrances. And so the Buddha delineates different aspects of experience for us to understand the coarser aspects and then the, the more subtle aspects. But all of these arise in tandem. So when you're observing what is happening with the body, you're also observing the feeling tied to the body. You're observing your reaction tied to that feeling. You're observing the perceptions and so on. And then finally the Buddha gets into the Four Noble Truths. And so he talks about the Four Noble Truths and he says that there is there are these Four Noble Truths. That there is suffering, there is an origin, To this suffering there is the cessation of suffering and there is a way leading out of that suffering there's a way leading to the cessation of suffering so basically he gives a diagnosis here we have suffering and then he goes to what is the cause and condition for the suffering then he says there's a cure to the suffering like a doctor and he says here are the prescriptions for letting go of suffering so, now we're going to explore that more in detail. So, he starts off with saying that birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress are suffering. Being attached to the unloved is suffering, being separated from the loved is suffering, not getting what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging. Are suffering. And now he's going to unpack what is birth and why is it suffering. And what monks is birth? in whatever beings of whatever group of beings there is birth, coming to be, coming forth, the appearance of the aggregates, the acquisition of the sense bases, that is called birth. So first let's talk about the different types of Dukkha, the three categories of Dukkha. There is Dukkha Dukkha, Viparinama Dukkha and Sankhara Dukkha. So Dukkha Dukkha uh, manifests as what we see in terms of birth and aging and death and illness and so on. So when we talk about birth over here, we're not only just talking about birth in terms of birth of a new being. Of course, that is suffering, because now you have brought that being into a new existence where suffering is possible. Through the impermanence of pleasurable feelings, through painful feelings, and so on and so forth. And when we talk about the birth of beings, we're talking about the acquisition of the sense bases. Depending upon where you are in that chart of the 31 realms of existence, you may have certain sense bases fully functional. Or you may not even have form at all in, in terms of the formless realms where there's only mind. And you may have certain aggregates present and certain aggregates won't be present. And so the coming into being, and there are different ways in which a being is generated through the womb, through moisture, through egg, and through spontaneous generation. So this, these are the different ways in which beings come into being. This is the way in which beings are born into some sort of an existence or sphere of existence. But when we talk about birth, we also talk about birth in terms of rebirth in every moment. Right? We talk about how rebirth arises in terms of the arising and passing away of consciousness. So when we talk about The arising and passing away of consciousness, we see it for ourselves at infinite consciousness, like we talked about yesterday. And then you see the impermanence of existence. By seeing the impermanent nature of existence, because it's conditionally dependent, you realize that it's not worth holding on to. Because as soon as you hold on to that which is impermanent, it slips away. And therefore it is liable to cause dukkha it is liable to cause suffering. And therefore it should not be seen as me, mine, or myself. But there's another way of understanding birth in terms of what happens in our daily lives. The birth and arising of new consciousnesses in every moment, but also the birth of action, the birth of karma. When we talk about dependent origination, The way to look at dependent origination is that it is like a stream or a river and different bends of that stream and that river denote or different whirlpools and rapids within that river denote the different links of dependent origination. And then becoming, going into birth is the waterfall. As soon as you cross the bend of the waterfall you go down. Going down is the birth of action. So, you cannot recall the birth of an action. In other words, once the arrow has been shot, you cannot recall the arrow back in terms of your mental action, in terms of your verbal action, in terms of your physical action. So, birth of action, the reason why we call this birth of action is because it continues to add to the repository of karma. Whatever we inherit, we inherit from our previous choices that were done at some point in the past. And what we are experiencing now, in the present moment, is a result of those choices. How we choose to react, that will cause the birth of further reactions, the birth of further karma, or will cease that karma or seize packets of that karma. In your meditation, when you are met with hindrances, what is happening? The hindrances are old karma, that which you inherit in the present moment, as a result of previous choices. Now you could choose to identify with that hindrance, choose to push and pull that hindrance, choose to react in a way that causes further suffering. That's the further birth of action, which then leads to that whole mass of suffering. Or, you can understand in that moment what that hindrance is. That hindrance arose because of prior causes and conditions. Therefore, it is impermanent, not worth holding on to, and not yours. Not to be seen as me, mine, or myself. When you recognize that hindrance, you stop it in its track. You let go of your reaction to it, bring it back to the present moment, relax the tightness and tension, and then generate a wholesome state through the smile and keep that going through your meditation on metta. When you do it in this way, then you are letting go of that old karma in the form of that hindrance. But what happens? That hindrance comes back again. But that hindrance comes back again with weaker force in the next moment. So you do the same thing. You use right effort to let go of that hindrance. And then that hindrance comes back yet again, but it's much weaker again. And you're able to quickly recognize that hindrance this time around. Eventually, that hindrance fades away. The ceaseless remain uh, and remainderless fading away. The ceasing Uh, and remainderless fading away of that hindrance. So the birth of action here is one aspect of it. Another way of looking at birth is that, or rebirth, is the same definition for insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. You will find in your life that you have come across certain kinds of people, certain kinds of situations, certain kinds of relationships that seem to have similar kinds of patterns. And so you go through a process of rebirth with those same or similar kinds of experiences, with those similar kinds of relationships, with those similar kinds of situations, until you learn to let go and have wisdom from them. When you learn to let go, instead of reacting to them, adding further to that repository of further patterning and repatterning of certain kinds of situations. You will still continue to have that until you learn to let go. And once you let go, you will find that you have greater clarity about certain situations and you won't repeat the same mistakes. You won't repeat the same kind of reactions to deal with those similar situations. So this is one way of understanding birth it is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And what is aging? In whatever beings of whatever group of beings there is aging, decrepitude, broken teeth, gray hair, wrinkled skin, shrinking with age, decay of the sense faculties. That, monks, is aging. Until scientists discover a way to prevent aging, we all have to experience aging. There are some people who are so afraid of the aging process that they will do Botox. One of the side benefits is they'll keep smiling all the time. Or, you know, they'll uh, color their hair, or they'll get a wig, or they'll do something or another, and they'll see themselves in the mirror and look at themselves and say, oh my God, here's a wrinkle. Here's a gray hair, you know, and then that that frightens them. Because their their self-image is tied up with the body. Their conceit is tied up with the body. The craving for the body and sense experiences causes, or identification with it as well, causes the mind to suffer when it sees signs of aging. The sense faculties decay, right? Our eyes grow weaker, our ears grow weaker, our limbs grow weaker. We aren't able to have the same kind of energy as we had before as we get older. But that's just a normal process of the body. But if you identify with the body, if you see this body as me, mine, or myself, then you will have suffering in the form of aging. So if you see what aging is and accept it, understand it as a natural process of human existence, and indeed many other kinds of existences, then you will not suffer. Because you won't identify with the body anymore. You will see what the body actually is. The body is made up of different states of matter. Made up, made up of the great four great elements right we'll go that in we'll go over that in greater detail but the body is just made up of the food that we eat the nutrition we have the body is made up of the different intakes that we have through our different senses and so on and so forth so you have, if you identify with the body you will cause yourself suffering likewise with death And what is death? In whatever beings of whatever group of beings, there is a passing away, a removal, a cutting off, a disappearance, a death, a dying, an ending, a cutting off of the aggregates, a discarding of the body. That, monks, is called death. Death is a natural part of life. This is something that we all have to accept. Some people aren't able to accept it and experience great amounts of anxiety about it. That one day their life is going to end. Everything they did on this earth, everything that they achieved, none of that can they take with them after death. And they get afraid of that. Because their self-image is tied to their achievements. Their their self-image is tied to the body. Their self image is tied to the things that they have, the things that they possess, the things that they have created, the relationships that they have fostered, and so on. And they are afraid of losing all of that. And sometimes people aren't afraid of their own debts, they're afraid of the debts of their loved ones, of their parents of their siblings, of their relatives. And there there is the grief that arises. We'll talk about grief in a moment. But when we grieve, we do not grieve for those who are dead. We grieve for ourselves because those who are dead have left an empty space in our lives. We grieve out of selfishness because we attach a sense of self to the relationships we had with those people who have passed on. We grieve because those people are, not, are no longer in our lives, no longer able to maintain the relationships that we wanted. And so when there is impending death of a loved one, we can experience anticip- anticipatory g- grief. And there can be a lot of anxiety around that. But understanding and accepting that death is natural and a normal process, and letting go of your identity Tied to yourself in terms of the body. Tied to the idea that you are permanent in the body. Tied to the idea of a relationship that is long-lasting with a person. Tied to the other person in relation to you and who you think you are with that person. All of these ideas tied with that self-image cause suffering when death arises. And there can arise what is known as death anxiety. In fact, the most extreme form of death anxiety and death denial comes in the form of one who inflicts violence on others. Because they are so afraid of death that they will kill other beings, thinking that they have control over death. This is how their mind works on a subconscious level when they inflict violence on others. So understanding death and understanding how death arises, how death happens, understanding that you one day will die, whenever that may be, that's fine, that's okay. In fact, there is a lot of freedom in that. Not that there is craving for non-existence, but that all that you do here All that you have garnered here, all that you have fostered here, all of that is impermanent. When you truly understand that and you unravel that self-image tied to that experience, you experience freedom. Otherwise, the mind is always thinking about how to maintain an image, how to maintain an identity how to maintain the perception of how others see you. But if you know everything is going to end, doesn't really have much of a bearing on how you behave, then you realize that you are free. That doesn't mean you go about being unwholesome. But what it means is you no longer spend all of your mental energy on trying to create a persona. Because that persona will end. You just live life as it actually is, without expectations. Total freedom, total liberation. Until then, and when the mind continues to identify with the body and its relationships and so on, there will be suffering because of death. And what is sorrow? Sorrow. Whenever by any kind of misfortune anyone is affected by something of a painful nature, sorrow, mourning, distress, inward grief, inward woe, that monks is called sorrow. So sorrow, here it is sadness, grief, despair. We talked about it in, in relation to death, in relation to, in relation to things ending. Because remember, death also can mean the death of a relationship. The death of a relationship in terms of breaking up with someone. You've invested so much time into that relationship. So much emotional energy into that relationship. And then it ends. And you can experience grief from that as well. You can become sad. First of all, you have to understand what is sadness? What is grief? What is this war that you experience? It's an unpleasant feeling. When you experience it, there is nothing wrong with it. Understand this. There is nothing unwholesome or wrong about experiencing grief, about experiencing anxiety, about experiencing depression. Don't judge yourself. Don't judge your mind for experiencing these things. If you have criticism for your own mind for experiencing these things, then do the forgiveness practice. Forgive yourself. Not for experiencing these things. Forgive yourself for criticizing your mind for experiencing these things. It's a natural part of life, it's a natural part of existence. Allow it to be there. What is key is how do you respond to that grief? How do you respond to that sadness? How do you react? Do you identify with that sadness? Do you identify with that grief? And which continues that grief, which continues that sadness? Or do you see it as arising because of causes and conditions? Once you understand that, then you can start to let go of that sadness. Then you can start to let go of that grief through wisdom. That wisdom, which is rooted in reality, is the understanding of whatever is arisen through causes and conditions, whatever is dependently arisen, is impermanent, therefore not worth holding on to, therefore not to be seen as me, mine, or myself. Likewise with lamentation, and what is lamentation? Whenever by any kind of misfortune anyone is affected by something of a painful nature, and there is crying out, lamenting, making much noise for grief, making great lamentation. That, monks, is called lamentation. So lamentation is crying out. Now people can cry for different reasons, right? Tears can arise for different kinds of reasons. People can cry out in in the form of relief, of letting go of suffering. People experience this loving-kindness. And sometimes they cry because of experiencing such great joy. There was one person I remember at uh, the Easter retreat, the retreat that I had done in San Francisco or near San Francisco. And this person said that they had never experienced such joy. And the last time they experienced such joy had been in 40 years. And they cried. There were tears of joy. So there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with crying out of sadness either. When you do the forgiveness practice, there's a lot of release going on, and you experience crying there as well. So the lamentation is suffering insofar as you continue to identify with it. But if you see it as a natural process, see it as arising because of causes and conditions, and then let it go, don't let it continue through wisdom and compassion Then you won't suffer further. Then he comes to pain and he says, What is pain? Whatever bodily pain, whatever bodily painful feeling, bodily unpleasant feeling, painful or unpleasant feeling results from bodily contact, that monks is called pain. So pain is a type of suffering. When you sit for a long period of time, You may experience pain in the knees, pain in the chest, pain in the neck, pain in your hips, pain wherever it might be. And so that painful feeling is dukkha. It is suffering. It's an unpleasant feeling. But how do you deal with it? How do you react to it? That's what's important. The more you pay attention to that painful feeling, The more you identify with that painful feeling and use the six R's in such a way that you use it like a whip, trying to whip away that feeling, the more that painful feeling is going to arise. But if you understand your mental reaction to the pain, if there is aversion to the pain and let go of the aversion, relax, then even if the pain is there, it's not such a big deal. The Buddha talked about two darts, or the two arrows. The one who is still under some kind of delusion will feel some kind of bodily pain, but there will be also a mental pain associated with it. That is to say, there will be irritation because of that pain. There will be some kind of aversion because of that pain. There will be some kind of grief because of that bodily pain. But one who has understood one who has attained wisdom will not experience the second arrow which is to say they will still experience bodily pain they will still experience some kind of discomfort but there won't be any irritation in their mind their mind won't be affected by that pain that by that pain so as to cause that mind further suffering So there won't be any reactivity to that pain. The response will be, here is pain, I understand there to be pain. And if there is aversion, one lets it go. But the fully awakened mind won't have any aversion to it. They will see that pain for what it actually is. In the same way, all things that are arisen through causes and conditions are impermanent, not worth holding on to. If they are held on to, liable to cause suffering. Therefore, to be seen as impersonal. Not me, not mine, not myself. And what is sadness? Whatever mental painful feeling, mental unpleasant feeling, painful or unpleasant sensation results from mental contact. That, monks, is called sadness. This can be depression. Right? People have depression for multiple reasons. It could be a chemical imbalance in the brain. It could be sadness through grief, through loss, through whatever it might be. But the understanding is not to judge yourself for that depression. That depression is there. Okay, fine. What do you do with it? How do you respond to it? How do you react to it? That depression can come and go. Right? It might not be there all the time. You might have little bouts of joy here and there little bouts of happiness here or there. So understanding that that depression arises because of causes and conditions allows you to stop identifying with that depression, causing you further further suffering in the form of judgment and criticism. If sadness is there, if depression is there, let it be. It's fine. But understand how you react to it, how your mind responds to it. And what is distress? Whenever by any kind of misfortune anyone is affected by something of a painful nature, distress, great distress, affliction with distress, with great distress, that, monks, is called distress. So that, another word for that would be anxiety, maybe even just general anxiety. People sometimes have panic attacks. And so when people have panic attacks, what's happening is there's, they are overwhelmed by a lot of stimulation around them, mental and physical sensory stimulation. Their thoughts start to pace at a very fast rate and they feel like they're out of control in terms of what's going on. And so they can experience panic attacks, they can experience anxiety. Maybe they're worried about the future Worried about how they're going to pay their bill. Worried about how they're going to do anything, really. Whatever it is that they have a goal for, there can be restlessness tied to that. And so this distress, this anxiety, again, it's there. Allow it to be there. It's fine. How do you deal with it? If you identify with that anxiety, you're only going to further continue that anxiety. But if you are able to understand that this anxiety is arising because of some kind of cause and condition, it's due to some kind of condition. If you can let go of that condition, you start to let go of the identification with that condition and that anxiety, and that anxiety starts to dissipate. Of course, there can be some anxiety that which requires, um, you know, further help and further medication. That's fine too. But understand how you react in that moment when you're having anxiety. When you have anxiety, everything is blown out of proportion already. So it feels like everything is going to be worse off than it actually is. But if you calm down, take a pause, relax, let go, things start to slow down. Allow things to start to slow down then you have greater clarity and soon your thoughts stop pacing at a faster rate. Your thoughts start to slow down. Your bodily activity in terms of heart rate starts to slow down. And then your mind says, oh, it's only this. It's okay. Everything is fine. And you start to let go. I say this from people's experiences who've had panic attacks or are unable to then just be in the moment and let go of all of the thoughts that they're having in the periphery That's further strengthening that anxiety. They start to come here into the moment and realize, okay, everything is fine. Just let go of that. Don't pay attention to those thoughts there. Let go of that. Don't pay attention to that flow. Come back to the mind. Relax. Let go. Slow down. The more you do this, the easier it becomes. And eventually you see that anxiety is just arising because of causes and conditions as well. And what, monks, is being attached to the unloved? Here, whoever has unwanted, disliked, unpleasant sight objects, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, or mind objects, or whoever encounters ill-wishers, wishers of harm, of discomfort, of insecurity, with whom they have concourse, intercourse, connection, union, that, monks, is, being called, is called being attached to the unloved. So that can arise in the form of different kinds of unpleasant experiences, unpleasant feelings, unpleasant sensations, unpleasant relationships, and all kinds of things like that. But again, seeing that as just an unpleasant feeling, arising due to contact, when you are able to actually see this, then your mind stops identifying with that feeling. Now, when the contact arises, there is a painful feeling if there it is unpleasant. The, what underlies that painful feeling is the underlying tendency towards aversion. There are these seven different types of underlying tendencies which bridge the gap between feeling and full blown craving and aversion we'll go deeper into that when we talk about dependent origination but when it comes to a painful feeling some of those seven underlying tendencies can be the underlying tendency towards aversion can be ignorance can be doubt can be conceit can be craving for existence can be views and then that gives rise to full-blown craving or aversion in this case And what is being separated from the loved? Here, whoever has what is wanted, wanted—light, pleasant sight objects, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, or mind objects, or whoever encounters well-wishers, wishers of good, of comfort, of security, mother or father or brother or sister, or younger kinsmen or friends or colleagues or blood relatives, and then is deprived of such concourse, intercourse, connection or union, that monk's is called being separated from the loved. Here there is a pleasant experience, there is a pleasant sensation, there is a pleasant relationship, there are pleasant situations. Then all of a sudden that changes, the relationship ends, the person dies the experience of the pleasant sensation changes, goes away, ends. This is impermanence. right? Knowing this, understanding this, and seeing this allows you, allows the mind to let go of any identification with any feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And thereby, when they do this, no underlying feelings Tied to underlying tendencies tied to that feeling can give rise to full blown craving, aversion, or identification. So, these different things, we're going to get more into that. And what is not getting what one wants? In being subject to birth, monks, this wish arises Oh, that we were not subject to birth, that we might not come to birth. But this cannot be gained by wishing that is not getting what one wants in being subject to aging to disease to death to sorrow lamentation pain sadness and distress this wish arises oh that we were not subject to these things that we might not come to these things but this cannot be gained by wishing this is not getting what one wants so in other words you are in some kind of an experience that is unpleasant. You can't just wish your way out of that experience. You can't just say, oh, here I am stuck in traffic. I wish I could get out of this traffic. You can't. You can't just magically transport yourself out of that traffic. Here I am within this boring conversation with someone. It would be impolite to just walk away, right? You just have to listen. You can't just wish yourself out of it. Here I am in this party that I don't want to be, but I'm here because, you know, my friends want me to be here. Yeah, sure, you can take an action and go away and things like that. But in that moment, wishing yourself away, you can't do that. Somebody has a debilitating disease. Somebody has cancer. Somebody has an underlying disease that goes on for life. It would be great if they could just wish themselves out of that disease, out of that illness. But that's not always the case. They have to do something. They have to take medication. And sometimes that medication doesn't help. Sometimes whatever regimen they're doing doesn't help. And there is suffering in that. Not being able to get what you want. Or the very mundane things, you know, like, uh, I wish I had that job, right? Right? I wish I had that position. Or I wish uh, you know, I, I was uh, recognized for what I did. It doesn't happen. There's suffering in that when you identify the self image with these kinds of achievements and things. And what monks, and how monks, in short, are the five aggregates affected by clinging suffering? They are as follows the aggregate that is form that is feeling that is perception that is that are mental formations that are consciousness affected by clinging these are in short the five aggregates affected by clinging that are suffering and that monks is called the noble truth of suffering so the five aggregates that in of themselves are not suffering what we are talking about here What we are talking about here is that process of identifying with one or more of the five aggregates. The self-view that causes suffering. The Sakaya Diti. We will talk more about this, but there are in general 20 kinds of self-view. That is to say, the five aggregates multiplied by the four kinds of Identification. You may see in your mind that the mind identifies with these aggregates as being self, as self-possessing these aggregates, as self-being in these aggregates, or as these aggregates separate from self, or variations of this. And when there is that self-image in relation to these five aggregates, the very nature of the aggregates is that they are impermanent liable to cause suffering. And because you see it in that way, you should not cling to them with self-view. But because a person does that, when there is change in the form of the impermanence of feeling, of perception, of form, of consciousness, of intentions, through mental formations, then it can cause suffering. Now earlier I mentioned these three categories of suffering. The dukkha dukkha, the Viparinama Dukkha and the Sankara Dukkha. So let me explain how you can categorize what we just talked about under these three categories. So in the first case, the Dukkha Dukkha is the apparent Dukkha, the, the, the Dukkha that is right now understood as birth, as illness, as aging, as death, as sorrow, as pain, as lamentation, as sadness and distress. That dukkha is there. You know, when you experience grief, it is extremely apparent that there is present this dukkha. Viparinama dukkha is the dukkha of change. That is, being attached to the unloved, being separated from the loved not getting what one wants. This is all part of the process of change. You know, some of you were, well, I know at least one person uh, was going to be here, right? But their flight got delayed. They were experiencing Vipari namaduka. It's a good thing that their flight didn't get cancelled. They would experience more Vipari namaduka, Right? Let's say it's a very cold morning. Right? You turn on the geezer and uh, you turn on the shower and it's nice and warm and it's steaming and you're experiencing great comfort. Suddenly the geezer goes off and there is cold water. That is Viparinama Dukkha, the Dukkha of change. And then Sankhara Dukkha. That is the five aggregates. Those are the five aggregates affected by clinging. They are part of Sankhara Dukkha. Here when we talk about Sankara Dukkha, we are talking about a very subtle kind of Dukkha that is inherent in existence itself. And that arises when there is identification, when there is craving for existence, craving for non-existence, and there is craving in terms of identifying with one or more of the five aggregates through the different types of wrong self view So that was just the first noble truth. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is that craving which gives rise to rebirth, bound up with pleasure and lust, finding fresh delight now here, now there. That is to say, sensual craving, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. Here's an important question. And where does this craving arise and establish itself? Wherever in the world there is anything agreeable and pleasurable, there this craving arises and establishes itself. Now here the Buddha is talking in terms of craving, but the flip side of craving is aversion. Right? So you think about a coin. On one side is craving, on the other side is aversion. And then there's a third aspect to that, which is the the side of the coin, which is or the rim of the coin, let's say, which is the identification process. That is also part of craving. When there is a pleasant experience, there is expectation for that pleasant experience to continue. Whether it is a pleasant sensation, a pleasant relationship, a pleasant circumstance, whatever it might be, there is this inherent expectation that that will continue. And because of that, the craving establishes itself in that pleasant experience. Or, there is a painful experience and there's an expectation that this painful experience will never end. And because of that, there is aversion to that experience. Or there's a neutral experience, but there's identification with that, saying that this is me, this is mine, this is myself. And so that is the ignorance that's there. And that can give rise to further suffering. And what is there? In the world that is agreeable and pleasurable, or disagreeable and not pleasurable. The eye in the world, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. And there this craving arises and establishes itself. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects in the world are agreeable and pleasurable, or disagreeable and not pleasurable. And there this craving or aversion arises and establishes itself. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness in the world is agreeable and pleasurable or disagreeable and not pleasurable. And there this craving or aversion arises and establishes itself. Eye contact, ear contact. Nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact in the world is agreeable and pleasurable or disagreeable and not pleasurable. And there, this craving or aversion arises and establishes itself. Feeling born of eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, and mind contact in the world is agreeable and pleasurable or disagreeable and not pleasurable and there this craving or aversion arises and establishes itself. The perception of sights, of sounds, of smells, of tastes, of tangibles, of mind objects, volition in regard to sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects, they can be agreeable and pleasurable, or they can be disagreeable and displeasurable, and there this craving or aversion arises and establishes itself. Before I continue, let's just talk about these different ones. So first he talks about first he talks about the sense bases themselves. So the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. These can be agreeable. In what way can they be agreeable? You can say, oh, what beautiful eyes I have. What beautiful ears I have. And you can start identifying with them. Or you feel your self-image is tied to a low self-esteem in relation to your sense basis. And then you can identify with that. Identifying with the sense basis creates further craving or aversion in relation to it. And then that causes the suffering. Or their objects, that is to say, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the tangibles for the body and the thoughts. When you are meditating, what are you experiencing? You're experiencing all kinds of thoughts arising and passing away. But there is somewhere in your mind a tendency to say, that thought is mine. That thought belongs to me. That thought is me. And because of that, there's aggravation. Why doesn't this thought stop? It should stop. But the very fact that you cannot make it stop shows that it is actually impersonal. So allow those thoughts to just be there. Let them flow like traffic. When the hindrances arise, you identify with them, causing yourself further suffering. When you experience loving-kindness and the feeling goes away, you experience dukkha because you say, where did my loving-kindness go? Where did the loving-kindness that I generated go? Right? You're identifying with that process. Or if you experience the factors of the jhanas, you say, oh, it changed. Of course it changed. Everything that arises through causes and conditions, that which is dependently arisen, is impermanent, has the nature of changing, is inconstant. So stop identifying with it. Let it go observe everything, be that observer, be that witness that sees everything that arises and passes away and remains unaffected, good, bad or indifferent whatever it might be remains unaffected by that so that means even with the sense based experiences the sights, the sounds the touches, the smells whatever it might be what about the sense based consciousnesses right? There is an awareness tied to each sense base. So that is to say there is the eye consciousness, the ear consciousness, the nose consciousness, the tongue consciousness, the body consciousness, the mind consciousness. When there is an identification with the awareness that arises dependent upon the sensation, there too can there be craving. And from that craving there can be further clinging further becoming, further birth of action, leading to that whole mass of suffering. So what eye I-consciousness? What is What are these sense-based consciousnesses? Well, first, let's talk about the contact that he talks about afterwards. He says the eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact. What constitutes as contact? There is the eye and there is the form and color. Dependent upon these, there is an awareness of that experience, an awareness of the eye, that is to say, the physical eye. Or there is an awareness of the ear when there is the contact between the two. And dependent upon the, the sense base and the sense base object, these are the 12 ayatanas the internal sense bases and the external sense bases, the 12 ayatanas. When these two meet, there is awareness of that. These three together constitute the eye contact, the ear contact, the nose contact, the tongue contact, the body contact and the mind contact. When there is identification with those experiences, whether it's the contact or the awareness is arising from that, or even the feeling born from that contact, there, there is craving. That craving, when it establishes itself, there can arise clinging. And when we talk about clinging, we'll talk about it tomorrow. But there are four types of clinging as well, which give rise to some kind of identification with habitual tendencies. A person then reacts from that and causes themselves further suffering. Then he says the perception of these things. What is the perception of these things? Remember, feeling is the experience. Everything you're experiencing right now is the sensation, is the feeling. But the perception of being able to know and recognize recognize what is being said, what you are seeing, that is perception. Knowing this is the color blue, knowing the language that I'm speaking, understanding the words that I'm saying, registering them in your mind, creating all of these ideas and concepts around that. This is the process of perception. And if you identify with that perception, saying that I am the perceiver, or this perception arises from me, then you will cause yourself dukkha. Because you are, if you do not understand this, you will think, that that perception being you, when it goes away, when it is changed, you can cause yourself suffering. You hold on to a certain kind of perception, a certain kind of idea, a certain concept about reality. When that is challenged, you experience cognitive dissonance, and that causes suffering in your mind, because now there's new information to challenge that perception. But you've identified with that perception. So, when you identify with it and it's challenged, it seems to challenge your sense of self, your self image. And that leads to suffering. Volition in regards to sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects. So, volition, what is that? That is the intention, the inclination of a mind in regards to what it is experiencing. If you identify with the choices that you make, you identify with the decisions that you make, you identify with the intentions that the mind makes in relation to what's going on. See, when you have contact with the outside world, when there is contact with the sense bases and their objects, that contact also gives rise to feeling and perception, right? But it also gives rise to intention, or it can give rise to an intention. It's hot outside. You see a tree over there. You decide to go get the shade of that tree. The decision-making of that is the volition. Now, if you identify with that choice, let's say you go under that tree, and there's a cobra lingering on a branch, and it bites you. Now you cause yourself suffering. Now you identify with the intention and you say, what an idiot I am to have done that. Right? Or you do something. Any choice that you made in the past, any choice, good, bad or indifferent, that leads to some kind of circumstance that you did not want, what's the first thing that happens? You feel regret. You feel remorse. But this is very subtle, right? It's very challenging for the mind not to identify with choices because they are so ingrained with the sense of I, that I made this decision. This was my choice. Then comes the idea, okay, you say that, then what about free will? There has not been a retreat that we've conducted where the question of free will doesn't come about. So before it comes about, let me deal with it now. So when we talk about free will, that's the idea that there is some kind of agency, there is some kind of person that is independent from causes and conditions that has free will. But all of your choices arise based on what is presented to you. So they arise dependent upon causes and conditions. Does that mean that you don't have free will? it doesn't mean that you don't have free will either. What you have is a conditioned will. Or as Venerable Natananda would talk about, you have a free won't. In other words, when you realize that your mind is trying to make this choice, you can stop in that any present given moment and change that choice. Usually your mind projects towards automatically or semi-automatically Towards a specific kind of choice, towards a specific kind of intention. But if you are able to 6R that, recognize that, and not do that, if it's an unwholesome intention, then you have freedom in every given moment to let go of that. But that freedom or that ability to choose is dependent upon having new information. You being introduced to the Dhamma, being introduced to right view, being introduced to what is right and wrong, what is wholesome and unwholesome. So that choice too is dependent upon causes and condition, conditions. Therefore, don't think that you don't have a choice. But don't think that you do have a choice either. See every given moment as an opportunity to start to recondition the choices towards the wholesome and then let go of identifying with the wholesome. But if you do identify with these choices, that can cause suffering. That is a form of craving. Thinking of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects, Pondering on sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, and mind objects. So thinking and pondering, this can be part of craving. So that is mental proliferation. That is Papancha. We'll talk about Papancha in a couple of days, but mental proliferation is where the mind is agitated by things that it is experiencing and reflecting on them in such a way that it causes further analysis, further identification, further thinking about this or that in relation to an experience. Just consider the amount of energy and time that is expended in the thinking process, in the process of reflection, in the process of undo thinking and undo reflection, I should say. That identification process with that and further doing that causes suffering. Further craving for it, further clinging in relation to it, further becoming from it and acting out of that, that causes suffering. And that, monks, is called the noble truth of the origin of suffering. So in short, the, these three types of craving. Craving for sensual experiences, craving for continued existence, and craving for non-existence. Craving for sensual pleasures, we already know what that is. We see that we identify with an experience and we want more of it. And then there is this tightness and tension around in the mind and body in preparation for wanting more of that, in preparation for satisfying that craving. Or there is something that is disagreeable and unpleasant. And the mind identifies with that sensual experience and says, I don't want it. I don't like it. And it tenses up to push it away. Or there's craving for existence. Craving for continued existence. I want things to be the way they are. I like right where I am. I'm very comfortable. I'm in my comfort zone. When you have that kind of idea that I want everything to be the way it is or dissatisfaction with the way things are and saying, I don't want to be here but I want to be something else. I want to be a great meditator. I want to have that particular jhana. Again, that can be chanda but becoming obsessed by that. Having an expectation and anticipation of saying I have to get to Nibbana before the retreat ends. That's a craving for existence. Craving for non-existence. I don't like this retreat, the way it's going. I don't want to be here. Let me leave. Please. This is a craving for non-existence. Any situation which is unpleasant and the mind feels agitated and says, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be. I don't want to become. When you catch yourself in your mind saying, I want to be this Or, I don't want to be this. This is craving for existence, craving for non-existence. The most extreme form of craving for non-existence is the desire for suicide. Generally, when people have that notion of wanting to end their lives, it's because they are overwhelmed with everything that's happening in their life. They've identified with so many different things, so many painful feelings, That they're unable, they feel out of control. But they feel like they need to be in control and they're out of control. But if you have wisdom and realize that you are never in control, there's freedom in that. So, letting go of the idea for the need to control things, even as mundane as, you know, having to go here or having to go there or having to do this, Just let's see and observe how mind responds in relation to these things. And let go of the craving and aversion in relation to these things. The, The desire for being in a certain state, the desire for not being in a certain state, being overwhelmed and saying, I can't take it anymore. If you watch your mind and relax and let go, take that pause And just allow things to be. On a neuroscientific level, what's happening is when you take that pause, initially what's happening is your reptilian brain, the deeper levels of your brain are are in that fight or flight mode. And they're like, I don't like this, I don't want this, or I want more of that, and it starts to shake up. But if you just pause, allow the limbic system to come into place, allow the cortex to arise, and then make the decision your decisions will be rooted in wisdom and compassion rather than being made out of haste. So this craving that arises, the deepest roots of craving is from that identification with the body and saying, I don't like this, I don't want this, or I like this and I want this in relation to the body because it it makes me feel good or it makes me feel bad. Take a pause. Allow the mind, the wisdom mind to come up. 6R, use the right effort to let go. And then from there, when you act, you're not going to cause yourself further suffering in the form of renewed being and karma. There won't be further birth of action. Instead, that action will be non-productive of any kind of karma. It will be ineffective karma in that sense. Because you will not be reacting and adding energy to what it is that you're experiencing. But you will be letting go. And the momentum of that karmic energy will start to dissipate, start to slow down. It might come up again, but this time it will be weaker and weaker and weaker until it goes away. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving, its forsaking and abandonment, liberation from it, detachment from it. And how does this craving come to be abandoned? How does its cessation come about? This is an important question. Whatever in the world there is anything agreeable and pleasurable or disagreeable and displeasurable, there its cessation comes about. And so what are these things that in the world that are disagreeable or agreeable, pleasurable or displeasurable? Again, the sense bases: The eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. It's objects of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mind objects. The eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness. The contact in relation to the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. The feeling that arises in relation to it. The craving, the intentions, the perceptions, the thinking, the pondering, all of these different things if there is a cessation of identification with that process, then there is the cessation of craving. When you do the six R's, we talked about how the six R's fulfill the four right efforts and how the six R's activate the seven enlightenment factors. But the six R's also get you in touch in that moment with the four Noble Truths of that moment. How is that? When you recognize that the mind is distracted and there is a hindrance, that hindrance is suffering. You recognize there is the first Noble Truth, that this is suffering. You might not inherently know it, But when you recognize the hindrance, you see that there is suffering in the mind. When you release your attention from it and relax, you let go of the origin of that hindrance, which is its undue attention to it. You take your attention away from that hindrance and you bring it back to mind and body. And then when you relax the tightness and tension, you cease the craving and for that moment you experience relief and then when you generate the smile you bring up the smile stay with the object in meditation you continue to cultivate the path leading to the cessation of suffering so recognizing the first noble truth releasing the second noble truth relaxing and experiencing cessation and then smiling and coming back to your object, to develop the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. And that's what we're going to get to now. So he says, and what, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering? It is just this noble eightfold path, namely, right view, right intention, right speech, Right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what monks is right view? It is monks the knowledge of suffering, the knowledge of the origin of suffering, the knowledge of the cessation of suffering, and the knowledge of the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called right view. Now, right view, samadhiti. there's the mundane right view and there is a super mundane right view. The super mundane right view has to do with knowing, now even, sorry, the the mundane right view has levels to that as well. There is the mundane right view of knowing what is right view and what is wrong view. There is the mundane right view of understanding what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. There is the mundane right view of understanding uh, that there is action and consequence. That there is a reaction to your actions. And then there is the mundane, the super mundane right view, which arises once you have established the path, once you have stream entry and so on and so forth, which is you start to come to an experiential understanding of the four noble truths. In other words, you have recognized and understood what is suffering fully. You have abandoned the origin of suffering fully. You have experienced that cessation of suffering fully. And you have cultivated and perfected the path, that is the Eightfold Path, leading to that cessation of suffering completely. And what monks is right intention, the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness, this monk's is called right intention. So, right intention is made up of three things nekama, which is renunciation, non ill will, and non cruelty. Renunciation here means seeing everything as being an impersonal process, not taking it personally. Non ill will arises when you have loving kindness when you perfect loving kindness to the point that there is no more ill will at all and non-cruelty when you perfect karuna or compassion recognizing the suffering in others which means you do not want to add suffering to them further suffering to their suffering because you recognize that you're suffering and others are suffering so why would you want to add to their suffering? adding to their suffering is a form of cruelty So non-cruelty happens through the cultivation and perfection of compassion. And what monks is right speech? Refraining from, from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. Remember a couple of days ago I talked about think before you speak, T H I N K. Is it the right time to say what it is that you want to say? Is what you are going to say honest? Is it true? What is your intention behind what you want to say? Is it wholesome or unwholesome? Is it necessary for you to say what you want to say? And can you say it with kindness? Think before you speak. When you do it in this way, you will operate with right speech. And what, monks, is right action? Refraining from taking life. Refraining from taking what is not given. Refraining from sexual misconduct. That is called right action. Following your precepts. So that includes right speech and right action, both. Now, of course, he doesn't talk about uh, refraining from indulging in intoxicants. But when you indulge in intoxicants, it can lead you to negligence. It can lead you to dullness, which can lead you to breaking the other precepts. At what And what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, the Aryan disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. So for the monastics, there are certain kinds of livelihood that they should not have. That is to say, things like dealing in astrology and palmistry and reading tea leaves and all these other kinds of things. Also becoming a doctor for some reason and all these other things. But basically the idea is if you become a monastic you have entered the homeless life for one thing and one thing only. For the attainment of Nibbana. Doing anything other than that, that does not lead to Nibbana, is wrong livelihood. Now for lay people when we talk about wrong livelihood it is any livelihood that deprives another of their happiness and deprives you of your happiness causes another harm and causes yourself harm causes one to break precepts or causes yourself to break precepts that would be wrong livelihood so these things include in like dealing in arms dealing in poisons, uh, dealing in alcohol, these kinds of things, Drugs. drugs and so on. And what monks is right effort? Here monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He makes an effort to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He makes an effort and, and strives to produce unarisen, unwholesome, sorry, strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. And he makes an effort to maintain those wholesome states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So in summary, the four right efforts is to prevent any unarisen, unwholesome states from arising, to abandon already arisen unwholesome states, to generate or bring up unarisen, wholesome states, and to maintain the already arisen, wholesome states. In, a, in other words, you are doing the six R's. When you recognize that there is an unwholesome state in your mind, there is present a hindrance that whole momentum of thoughts that give rise to that hindrance stops in that process and so you prevent any further arising of that unwholesome state when you release your mind your attention from that unwholesome state, bring it back to mind and body and relax you abandon the already arisen unwholesome state that is to say the hindrance and your reaction to that hindrance When you come back to your smile, you generate a wholesome state of mind. And when you make an effort to come back to the object of meditation, you maintain and bring to greater development that wholesome state of mind. And so, in a Sutta, I think it would be Majjhima Nikaya 117, if I'm not mistaken. The Buddha talks about how one goes from wrong view to right view, wrong intention to right intention, wrong speech to right speech, wrong action to right action, wrong livelihood to right livelihood, wrong mindfulness to right mindfulness, wrong meditation to right meditation. And he says that the heart of this process is right effort. One has the right view of knowing what is wrong and what is right first and foremost, Mindfully, that is through right mindfulness, one makes the right effort to go from wrong uh, wrong view or wrong intention or wrong speech to right view, right intention, right speech, and so on and so forth. So this right effort, the six R's, is following the Eightfold Path inherently, is developing and cultivating the Eightfold Path inherently. Whenever you do the six Rs, you are generating the right effort, you are cultivating the Eightfold Path, you are rousing up the Enlightenment factors, you are understanding the Four Noble Truths. And what monks is right mindfulness? Here monks, a monk abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. He abides uh, contemplating feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. This is called right mindfulness. So when we talk about right mindfulness, we're talking about remembering to observe how mind's object, how mind's, mind, mind's attention moves from one object to the other. In other words, in relation to body, in relation to feeling, in relation to mind, in relation to mind objects, the mind observes: Is there craving present? Is there aversion present? If there is, one lets go of that using the six R's. So meditation, right? The tools that you used to go into meditation are threefold. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort leads to right mindfulness. Right mindfulness leads to right concentration. Every time you let go of that concentration, you come back to right effort, which leads further to mindfulness, which leads further to concentration or collectedness. And what monks is right collectedness or concentration. Here, a monk detached from sense desires, detached from unwholesome mental states, enters and remains in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, born of detachment, filled with delight and joy, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, He enters and remains in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, born of concentration, filled with delight and joy. And with the fading away of delight, remaining imperturbable, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences himself, the joy of which the noble ones say, happy is he who dwells with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana, and having given up pleasure and pain, and with the disappearance of, uh, disappearance of former gladness and sadness, he enters and remains in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration. And that, monks, is called the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. Suffering. So when we talk about right concentration, right meditation, it means entering into these jhanas. When you go into the first jhana, your mind starts, as we said yesterday, starts to experience joy, starts to experience pleasure with the body. Let's go of the hindrances, let's go of unwholesome states. Then it lets go of the thinking and examining thought, experiences the second jhana. Then it lets go of the joy, experiences the third jhana. Then it lets go of the factors of the third jhana, experiences deep equanimity in the fourth jhana. Then in the fourth jhana, experiences infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, neither perception, non-perception. Now, from the first jhana onwards, you can experience the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness and experience nibbana if you have the right insight. That insight is the understanding that even these jhanas are volitionally produced. And therefore, letting go of that, you experience Nibbana. But having the right collectedness also means that from this right collectedness, there comes insight, Vipassana. So that means you are yoking together, inevitably, the Samatha and Vipassana. So you need the, the entirety of the Eightfold Path in order for you to experience awakening. And it all starts with right view. It all starts with understanding what is suffering, recognizing the causes and conditions of that suffering, letting them go and experiencing the cessation of that suffering through the development of the Eightfold Path. Are there any questions?
1: just wanted to point out two um, different types of suffering. One is birth. Birth is suffering. There is an entire science related to childbirth. Hmm. Every parent knows uh, childbirth is uh, full of fear and pain and yeah. anxiety. Yeah. And, uh, the second thing is burnout is very common among professionals. Right.
2: So if you could just
0: Burnout, yeah. Yeah yeah I think uh first, just to comment on what you said about birth, yeah people experience um anxiety around the birth of a child that's one thing, and then what the mother goes through, you know we men can't can't even possibly imagine what a what a woman must be going through, so that too obviously a mother experiences suffering in that form, so
1: it's also the obsteian pays a lot of suffering. <laughs>
0: So burnout, yeah, burnout happens for a multitude of reasons, but generally it happens because the the mind feels like it can still go on even past its limit, and it comes because of some kind of craving to achieve something. Right? There's an achievement. There's a deadline that you have to meet, or there's something that you have to do. You know, venerable a venerable uh, was talking about uh, Albert Ellis. You know, don't should yourself, right? Don't have to say, I have to do this. I should do this. Albert Alice also called it masturbation, which is continuously thinking, I must do things. It has to be this way. It has to be that way. And so you continue to make these efforts to do certain things. Even in meditation, you can burn yourself out. Right? What's the point of burning yourself out from meditation? That's the most oxymoronical thing that you could do. But I have seen people do it. They're like, No, no, I'm just gonna have four hours of sleep. I'm gonna eat one meal a day, or I'm just gonna fast for the whole day and I'm gonna meditate six hours today. And then they go through a process of like being very tired and don't know where they are, what planet they're on, what's going on, you know, and they experience that kind of burnout. So everything in equal measure, everything in a balanced way. Understanding what your limitations are. Understanding what you can do and what you cannot do. And stop, stop this whole process of things that, thinking that you need to do this. What is the worst that could happen if you didn't do something? You know, when you tie your self-image You tie the self-image to things that should be done or have to be done a certain way. And when it's not done a certain way or you cannot achieve it, what do you experience? You experience suffering. So burnout is a type of suffering because you just push, push, push. You know, even in the meditation, you push, push, push. And then the mind feels very tired at the end of it. If meditation is going really well, you should experience refreshment. You should experience joy. You should experience delight. You should experience happiness. You should experience relief and comfort. I hope that... Yeah. All the way in the back.
3: Um, speaking about suicide yeah. Suicide, talking about the negative Oh, I hate life or it's so hard or something That one's pretty easy to talk about But yeah. can you speak on the other possibilities Such as it feels like this is the next step or releasing attachments to life in this physical world and moving, or things where a person could feel actually positive and in their mind believing that this is an appropriate thing.
0: Yeah. Actually, I do recall a story about where the Buddha had gone on self-retreat. At at least this is how the story I remember is. He goes on self-retreat. And when he comes back from self-retreat, he sees all of these monks who just killed themselves, and he said, What happened? And they said that they thought that when you were preaching about nibbana and talking about the way leading to nibbana, it meant life is suffering, existence is suffering, and therefore the way out of that is to, you know, end that life. That's a misguided perception of what that is. The way we look at suffering is that there is suffering in existence, that there is suffering in life, but life in itself is not suffering because you still experience some levels of happiness, could be sensual happiness, but you also have the opportunity in life and existence to experience greater degrees of mental happiness through the jhanas and ultimately experience the ultimate happiness of nibbana, so, I can say this from some stories of people who have gone through the process of suicide, and this is their story. And they found that when they killed themselves, this one person, they killed themselves and they came back. So, however that happened, they came back. But when they, when they descended into a specific place, what they found was all of these, this whole room of people saying, I shouldn't have done that. What did I do? There's a lot of regret in that room. So in other words, the very final thought that happens just after a person kills themselves is, what have I done? And then they're suffering from that. Now this is one person's story, that their apparent journey has been. But I can say that, yeah, I I do agree with that. You know, Even if you think that this is the way leading to some kind of happiness and joy, you're going to find, you're you're going to say to yourself, I shouldn't have done that. And it will cause suffering.
3: Just to continue with that, and maybe there's more more to go, but just to clarify, it seems like the argument could be made that being attached to life in this physical realm is an attachment.
0: When we talk about being attached to life, it's, we're talking about being attached to or identified with life, identified with the processes of life. You know, it's not like a fully awakened being is like, an, like a robot, that they can't enjoy good food, or they can't enjoy the pleasures that are there, the pleasant experiences. But they're no longer identified with all those experiences. They're no longer identified with the process of life. They're still living, they're still going on whatever it is, but they're no longer... they're no longer attached with the idea that this is what gives me pleasure. They found for themselves the ultimate pleasure in their mind. So everything else just pales in comparison. That doesn't mean when when they they feel like everything pales in comparison, they're like, I'm out of here. They just realize, oh, this is it. And naturally, when they see that it pales in comparison, they naturally become dispassionate. They naturally become detached from life processes. But they don't kill themselves.
4: So Delson, there's, uh, there's just one sutta out there I think there's a monk named Gotika, mm. he slits his throat, yeah. he's uh, terminally ill yeah. and the monks are obviously very uh, disconcerted by this and they go to the Buddha and ask yeah. what happened to Gotika and yeah. then the Buddha points out, you know, uh, well you know, he, he slit his throat but that doesn't mean that uh, he's not my child, he's not right. a hunter. Right. Uh, so this is one extreme case. Yeah. Uh, in this no, case not,
0: actually, not one. This is one of three that Most, I know of. Okay, right. There's this one. There's Channa, and there's Vakali. Right. And I like the Vakali Sutta because of the end of what, what it shows in the, at the end of it. So, but they're they're similar in nature in terms of the content. So when in reference to Vakali, what happens is he is terminally ill, terminally Ill and he says, "There's nothing I can really do now. I should just." You know, pass on and he says I have a desire to see the Buddha and the Buddha says you know what is the use of seeing this physical body you know this body that's made up of all of these different organs and this and that one who understands and sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha this is what the Buddha says and then the Buddha gives him a discourse on feeling and on the impermanence of feeling after that, Vakali slits his throat or slits his wrist or whatever, according to the story. But in that, in that process of doing that, he sees the impermanent nature of all feeling. And immediately he lets go completely and attains arahatship. And then the last part of that story is, the, he, the Buddha is pointing to Vulture's Pete, where Vakali was. And there's all of this black smoke and he says, you see that black smoke, monks? That is Mara trying to figure out the consciousness of Vakali. Which means he's attained arahatship. His, his consciousness will no, no longer take further rebirth. But I don't think in this case the Buddha ever uh, condoned suicide. Mm. Even when Sariputta came to the Buddha and he said, it's time for me to attain Parinibbana, he says, do as you wish. Mm. He didn't say one way or the other. Mm. So he put the choice in that person, but he also gave a final discourse to Vakali saying, let go of all feeling, whatever it is that you're feeling. That discourse helped Vakali push his mind further towards letting go of everything and becoming an Arhat.
4: So obviously these cases are predicated upon the fact that these monks have prepared a lot in terms of the practice of the dhamma. And their mind has achieved a certain level of jhana so that, you know, even in that dying moment, they're able to uh, let go and see. But this, by no stretch of the imagination, you know, This doesn't no mean that uh, anyone should do it. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's an also another sutta or story of an arahat who, who uh, goes into spontaneous combustion and burns himself out as well. If he can do that, then by all means, you know. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. But uh, the idea here is to understand that nowhere in the suttas have I seen the Buddha ever condoning suicide. Never explicitly condoning suicide, or even implicitly. He only gave a discourse and then left that in that person's choice.
2: Uh, I just want to add to this one. I remember a sutta where uh, it was about uh, if you do a good action, it will lead to a good destination. And somebody asks Buddha that I have done enough good action. I can I can make suicide, and anyway, I will be going to a good destination. And Buddha gives analogy that uh, say there is a child not fully born, like not nine months old. Uh, anyway, the child will come. Can I? Can I do abortion? Like, can Can I do? Can I bring the child out within three months? Right. So, in that sense, there Buddha doesn't recommend it.
0: Yeah. So,
2: so. Yeah.
0: In other words, it's premature to do something like that.
5: Really grateful for making such a complex subject. So lucid for a naive person like me. I have a very basic and kindergarten question. You said that when you live life, live it naturally, don't make persona out of yourself. I have a very uh, difficult uh, uh, thing to understand that will it kill, will it demotivate ambitious people, will it kill ambition? Will it kill competition? Will it kill the fighting spirit of the kings that they need to have when there is a real bad enemy on you? I'm sorry if I'm asking a No, it's a good
0: question. It's a very good question.
5: I'm sure Buddha must have given some remedy for this. If it is true, what I'm saying, must have given some remedy for that as well, which is generally less… you know, spoken about is what I feel.
0: Yeah,
5: I'm not a very well-informed person, by the way.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, Buddha has actually also given advice for lay people. Actually, there's a sutta called uh, S- what is it, Sigala Sigalavada? It's the thirty-one, right, Divinikar. where he gives uh, advice to lay people about how they should live their lives. And nowhere does he talk about not to have ambition or anything like that. In fact, he even has a sutta where he talks about how to be a good shopkeeper. How to manage your finances. You know, so he gave different advice for different people. You have to understand the majority of the suttas that are there, I would say probably 98%, if not more than that, is targeted towards the monastics, which is where they are letting go of ambition, letting go of craving for existence, letting go of all of these things. And for, for lay people, he gave different kinds of advice according to their mindset. One time he actually even scolded and reprimanded Sariputta for uh, advising a lay person that led them to the Brahma Lokas. He said, you should have led him all the way to Nibbana. So depending upon that person's mindset, he would give different kinds of advice. So I think what this helps, or it should help, let's say, ideally, with anyone who's in the lay life, is to organize or reorganize your mind in terms of what is most effective for your goals. What is it that you want to achieve? And how to be actually an effective person in your life. You know, I've always joked, and I'm kind of half-serious about this, but I think Arahats would be the greatest CEOs because they would be so effective in making decisions They would be so effective in understanding people's mindsets that there would be no waste, no kind of ambition, personal ambition and things like that. They would just be doing things that were required for the situation. So this this should help clarify your intentions as a layperson and understand where do your ambitions reside. Is it just through a self-image Or is it true because you want to have a better life for yourself and your family and maybe even help make the world a better place? I think there's nothing wrong with that.
5: There is a small story which my grandmother told me, that Shivaji Maharaj, uh, I come from Maharashtra State, so Shivaji Maharaj was a great king, many of them may be knowing. His guru was Samarth Ramdas. So once he decided that he doesn't want to remain king, he wants to give up everything. And he went to Samarth Ramdas and he said that, I don't want to do anything. Ramdas told him that, okay, now you are my servant or my disciple, do what I tell you to do. And he, tell, he told him let go and run your kingdom. <laughs> so he did that, he ran run that his kingdom with that kind of uh, intention.
0: Uh Yes, exactly. That's a good story.
6: Sharpening the current discussion further. Yeah. uh, You said uh, don't look at uh, pleasure as pleasure and don't associate with displeasure. Doesn't that create a blah life? And does Buddha talk anything about meaning creation? Because meaning creation, meaning creation. Yeah. Because that is very important for continuity of life. I mean, a lot of people feel burnout. A lot of people find meaning in the children. But what does Buddha talk about? Yeah.
0: So the Buddha had talked about that uh, pleasant, it's not the pleasant feeling or the pleasure that is the problem or the issue or the, the situation that needs to be dealt with. It's your, your relation to that pleasure the intentions rooted in craving. So, like I said before, a fully awakened person could still experience pleasure. And in fact, I would argue that they would experience the greatest amount of pleasure because their minds are so clarified, their sense bases are so clear that they can fully experience everything without the sense of I. As soon as your sense bases are predicated upon the I, then your experience of pleasure is only limited to that. So it's not about foregoing pleasure. It's about foregoing your identification with that pleasure. It's easier said than done, I know, and it's much subtler. It's a very subtle thing to understand. But as you get deeper into this practice, you will start to realize that actually what is causing you suffering is not the pleasure but your expectation of this pleasure to continue. Or your expectation that this painful feeling will continue, and there the agitation arises. And when it comes to you know setting goals, uh, as you said, creating meaning in our lives, that is dependent upon your intentions. So everything that we see around us is created through meaning anyway this society that we have with us, this world that we have created for us, that has created through some kind of meaning. Society is dependent upon different kinds of cultural norms and memes and meaning. There's nothing wrong with that either. It just helps create some kind of stability. So you can create your own meaning in terms of how you see yourself in society and what you want to do in terms of your career and things like that. But that that can create also an impediment in what it is that you want to do. Because it limits your abilities. It can limit your abilities in what it is that you want to do. If your mind remains open, if your mind says, let's see how things happen, the, the underlying intention of whatever it is that you want to create will still be there. But you will have you will find that there are greater opportunities present to you. And I say this from my own experience and experience of other people, which is, you know, the idea that there are many opportunities available to do many different things. But if you limit yourself to just saying, I only want it this way, or I find meaning in only this, you might actually be closing off a lot of other things that would give even greater meaning. So the idea, the key here is not to identify with what you think is the meaning of your life. But allow your life to unfold. Allow karma to unfold, and inform your decisions in that way, instead of superimposing what you think it should be. Yeah,
7: Does that make I sense? I add something about meaning. As well, um, I think the the default belief system for people who aren't spiritual in the modern world is uh, egoism, which is. An obsession with one's own like material gain, or, or uh, kind of propping up their persona, but that that kind of life is inherently meaningless. uh, Especially if they hold the materialistic view that you know death is the end of of that consciousness, and so um, the Dhamma actually gives a lot of meaning because it's talking about cause and effect, that everything we do. Has an effect that follows from it. And so uh, all of our choices matter in that sense. And um, especially cultivating wholesome qualities and cultivating a, and you know, training our minds has immense value, especially if you adhere to the belief that, you know, your consciousness will uh, exist beyond this lifetime. And um, so I think that actually adds a lot of meaning in and of itself. And then the other thing is that the world doesn't have to give us meaning, it's, it's our minds that give meaning to the world. Like Delson was saying, like we're already creating mental models and frameworks and maps for how the world works. So when you see that your mind is doing all of that, and then you see how the mind is working, then you can actually gain some kind of control over that process and decide what's worth pursuing, or what actually matters to you. Um, so, for example, in the egoist kind of worldview, view, all that matters is your own personal gratification. But if you start to see that you can make other people happy too, then suddenly you're kind of... you have this greater meaning circle that you're creating for yourself. You can think, I'm doing things for the benefit of other people, and suddenly you've just created meaning through your own uh, conscious interpretation of having a life that is devoted to other people.
5: Suppose we help people out of their suffering if they have no inclination to walk the path or to even change. Yeah, is um, is
8: compassion enough?
0: Well, that's the thing, right? If a person does not want to walk the path, you can't do anything about it. There has to be a willingness from the other person to say, "I'm going to try this," and then you can handhold. And kind of lead them, and then say, "Okay, now you walk the path and see how it goes." But always there has to be a willingness from the other person to do it.
5: So we can't shake people.
0: <laughs> no, people have to change themselves, or they want—they have to be wanting to change. You know, like the uh, the other sutta that we were reading before, where the Buddha said, "You know, how come?" Or somebody asked, "How come it's that that?" You know, some people experience nibbana and some people don't. Right? He only points the way, but the person has to walk the path. But if they're not willing to walk the path, what can you do about that?
7: There's the the old joke how many Dhamma teachers does it take to change a light bulb? (laughs) Uh, Only one, but it's really got to want to change.
5: Difficulty in following the right speech, especially on phone calls, yeah. where we have to listen to people. Yeah, they might feel offended if we don't listen to the gossip or right uh, impure speech. And
0: all. Yeah. So, but you don't have to indulge in the gossip.
5: Because six are uh, doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs>
7: No, no, that's what
0: I'm saying. Don't 6 sorry. You don't have to indulge in the gossip at all. You could just. run the call, that's it. I know it's easier said than done, but like, really, why would you want to indulge in that? Why would you want other people to indulge in it? Yes.
5: I have succeeded in yeah. more than 90%, but few people, like, we know their nature. <laughs> they,
0: I mean, it all starts with one person saying, hey, I don't think we should be talking about this person in this way. You could be that person who could say that.
1: Uh, So first... um uh, um, um, I just like to say that I do uh, uh, really um, appreciate the part which you said about uh, the you know that any reaction that you have to any hindrance it leads to uh, you know the creation of that new karma and uh, so on and so 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 forth and I think that you know um, I think that that really helps with the way that I was uh, dealing with that. Um, I had a few questions around right um, livelihood. Yeah. So uh, one of them was that what are your views about things like, um, you know, eating meat um, because it directly causes harm. The other was that there are a few shades of grey, uh, like in the sense, if you look at things like, like, you know, the uh, production of milk. Now, uh, it is very, very common that most of the cows which are used there, they're not really treated well. Uh, and uh, you know that uh, once they stop stop giving milk, they are essentially given to slaughter. And there is another shade of grey that uh, you know that uh, any crops which are essentially the produced you have all of the insecticides which are used on them, which kill pests. And uh, you know even if you look and uh, you know even if you look at all of the uh, you know the organic crops, the you know the insecticides which are used there are still essentially organic, but you know they still do kill the insects which are there. Uh, so these were, were, were around food mm-hmm. uh, and the other, which I had, had was, you know, that essentially when it comes to my work, uh, it does happen a few times that, uh, you know, that, uh, just to make sure that everyone is on track, um, I, I need to show that I am upset with someone if they don't give their results. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the things that has really worked for me that, you know, um, again, as I was saying, I think, uh, Yesterday, that you know, that though my practice has become a lot, lot better than the, uh, since I came here on the the retreat, uh, I had uh, made it a habit that I would try and give give them loving kindness, and then you know I would try and show show that I'm yeah. uh, upset with them. That's one thing that helped. But I would love to know your views on you know on on doing that as well.
0: Yeah. So when it comes to uh, meat, and let's say the dairy industry, and as you said, insecticides and things like that. I I tend to say that that's, you know, everybody's personal responsibility or personal actions, how they want to do it. I wouldn't think of imposing that everybody should be vegetarian, for example. I personally am not vegetarian or vegan. But that doesn't mean that I would stop somebody else from being vegetarian. I think it's all a matter of personal choice in that regard. Now, yes, there is some understanding that if you do uh, certain things, that it, it somehow contributes to the continuing of, you know, whatever it might be, whether it's the dairy industry or meat or whatever it might be. And I totally uh, understand that position. I totally understand and respect that position. But I think still that should be left to people's individual choices. Now, in the the suttas, there is a sutta called uh, Jivaka Sutta, and there, uh, the Buddha is criticized for eating meat and allowing his uh, his students to eat meat, the bhikkhus, the bhikkhus to eat meat. And actually, he gives uh, certain conditions in which they can and cannot eat meat. But that's primarily for the monastics within the Nikayas, within the Pali Canon, when he talks about it. I think uh, when it comes for lay, comes to lay people, it should just be their personal responsibility and their individual choices uh, with regards to pretending like you're upset I, I think I would leave that to you because you have run a company before where you've had to have deliverables so how would you have dealt with it
7: give him a big slap on the face <laughs>
0: <laughs> with loving kindness
7: No, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a nice way to go about it. I think I like your strategy of having the intention or the mindset be of loving kindness, but then, you know, you can sternly let them know that, you know, you have a certain high standard of expectations for them. Um, I think those gray areas are really where the rubber meets the road with Dhamma practice, because if everything was really black and white, you know, we wouldn't have to think about these things and really wrestle with them and really see where our true intentions lie. So oftentimes, um, you know, like there was a story I was reading about someone, this Dhamma teacher whose house was invaded by cockroaches and just no matter what they did, you know, all the different, you know, send send them loving kindness or whatever it is, you know, they, they wouldn't go away and so, they were left with this choice of like, do I just abandon this house, or you know just learn to live, learn to live with it, or uh, do I actually want to use some kind of insecticide? And I forget what they actually chose, but it was more, the lesson was just that these gray areas are what make us kind of learn about ourselves and our mind and and uh, and and the Dhamma and really go into it, and because no one's there to just tell us. You know the the right answer.
0: So just to add to uh, to what you were saying about that, you know, you know, you'll find that even in the suttas, uh, the Buddha sometimes can admonish people in a very stern manner. Uh, like he'll call them misguided man, you know, which is which basically means you stupid fool, you know, the the original Pali. Um, and so, yes, he might, it might seem harsh on the surface and everything else. But, uh, and I'm not saying that you should call your colleagues or employees misguided men or misguided people. But what I'm saying is that, uh, yes, there, there isn't time to be stern. And you can be stern. There's nothing wrong with being stern. But your reaction or your intention behind what it is that you're doing. Because you could be stern out of reacting out of anger. Or you could be stern and saying, hey, guys, let's get to work. Let's deliver this stuff, let's do what we have to do and, you know, understand that there are consequences when we don't do this. So I found that even with little children, if you can, if you can t- explain them or show them, so let them make the mistakes that they want to make and let them understand the consequences of those mistakes. That's the only way they start to really learn. And so you're starting to ingrain in children, for example, the understanding of action and reaction, action and consequence, cause and consequence. I'm not saying that you need to do that with your employees, but I'm just saying, you know, think about it in that angle. And that way, it'll help you inform how to speak with your colleagues and employees and how to best manage, you know, that whole process.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, so uh, I think that um, many of the examples help a lot. Thanks for that. Um, I'm still left a little bit confused about, uh, you know, the matter of meat. Um, I do understand it is everyone's personal choice exactly as it is, but, uh, you know, like I think one of the things in one of the suttas, which the Buddha said was that, uh, I think that, uh, you know, the production of meat, uh, like in terms of at least being, um, butcher, uh, uh, I think that does not fall under right livelihood. So,
0: he says, uh, yeah, I think he says, butcher or killing living living beings, one of those two,
1: yeah. Uh, I I might be wrong about the wording of it. So exactly where in terms of that uh, value chain does the right or wrong in terms of uh, your morality fall? Uh, like in the sense, you have those who actually do the act of killing, you have those who are you know essentially involved in the um, distribution of these meats, without whom you know those who actually kill those uh, animals would not be able to do what they do. Then, uh, you know, you also have those who actually get those animals there. Then, you know, you have those like us who actually go out there and who buy that meat without whom again, it wouldn't happen. And I'm I'm, I'm not able to make a very clear framework for meat though. uh, I think one of the things that I feel a little more clear about is, uh, you know, the case of milk or crops. That uh, there, I feel that you know, like in the the production of any goods, right? It, it it can be done in the right way or the wrong way. For example, even if I'm producing mobile phones, mm. right? I could have harmed the you know, the the uh, women and the men who are working on that shop floor for you know, the, you know, you know producing those phones. So you know, uh, so as long as I know that you know that that's 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 something that can be produced without harm. Uh, that's one thing which I can buy, but uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a little uh, 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 still not clear about uh, me. Either.
0: Yeah, so the way that uh, you know, for example, Bhante Maramsi has explained it, and uh, the way that uh, we have understood it through the Jivaka Sutta is that uh, the, the killing of the animal is in itself uh, causing unwholesome consequences, unwholesome karma. And uh, in the case of the monastics, they cannot eat meat under three conditions, three or four conditions. One is if they have seen that the animal was killed, if they have heard the animal being killed, or if they have suspected that the animal was killed for them. Um, And so what the Buddha says is beyond that whatever is in your bowl meat or vegetable whatever it might be accept that with loving kindness so from that there's the understanding that the, the karmic consequence of killing is just in the person who actually kills for the meat but one who actually eats the meat doesn't face the karmic consequences at least that's how the understanding is but in terms of uh, contributing, again, like you mentioned, contributing to that whole process, yes, you can say that when you eat meat, you do somehow contribute to that process because you are buying the meat which keeps the uh, people in business and so on. But uh, everybody's, everybody can make that choice accordingly. But the idea of buying the meat from a karmic standpoint, now that meat, if it has not been killed for you, you have not been suspected that it was killed for you, you have not heard or seen that it was killed for you, then it's just meat there and you just... you buy it. Yeah, no, I'll just add, I mean, this is just my opinion, so
7: I'm not, you know, speaking for the Buddha here or anything. But, um, you know, your conscience plays a very large role in, in Kama. And so, you have to examine the effect on your own conscience personally. So if you know enough about the meat industry to feel guilty about eating meat, then I don't think you should eat meat. But if you look deeply into yourself and you feel that your conscience doesn't weigh on you, you know, this is a lifestyle choice that you can live with and you don't feel any guilt there, then, um, then there's not going to be a, a comic um, consequence, I would think.
0: Now it all starts with intention. So what is the intention behind what it is that you're doing? So again, that's why I say leave it to personal choice. Thank <laughs> you. No, no.
9: <laughs> this uh, uh noble truth it sounds very simple but I really find it's very difficult to really understand and relate of all the teachings of the Buddha yeah. uh, relating that we are in the fire of suffering that impulse how does one really create Because unless until that comes from within, Mm. there is no inner motivation to really come out of the uh, Dukkha. Yeah. Giving an example, let us see, we are all sitting here. Suddenly, this place gets on fire. What we will do? We will all run away because we know that we are going to suffer. Right. We are going to be burnt. Right. So in his wisdom, Buddha is saying that, you people, look at your suffering. Yes. But to relate that in really inner way, I really find is very difficult. So, the question is that, what kind of the practices which can create kind of the inner impulse from within, yes, I think life is really suffering. Mm. And which gives a kind of push to come out of that. Otherwise, I think I can listen, I can uh, talk, but uh, that uh, uh, inspiration or that impulse from within to move out would yeah. not really come. Yeah. So if you'd like to give some comment on that. Yeah.
0: So that, this is where that uh, understanding of some vega comes from. You know, that, that wanting to achieve tranquility that we were talking about earlier. So some people actually are okay with their suffering. Some people are like, well, okay, I, I'm suffering, but... Um, I can still do this and I'm okay with that. You know, they, some people use alcohol and drugs and things like that and say that's my uh, panacea for suffering. So the idea is that there has to be an urge, an inclination, an inner impulse, right, to come out of that suffering. And I think that's on an individual basis as well in terms of how much suffering you've actually had in your life. So, yes, I know we talk about how people should, we should wish for the happiness of all beings. But I think sometimes we should also wish for the suffering of all beings so that they can actually realize for themselves what's actually going on. So I think if there's not enough suffering or if there's not enough motivation, that motivation comes from saying, that actually, that motivation comes from the understanding that, like, I've had enough of this. Like, I've gone through this way too many times. There needs to be a way out. So the Buddha talks about it. When one comes into suffering, two things happen. Either he uh, continues in that suffering because he feels like there's a way out through you know, the pursuit of sensual pleasures or the pursuit of drugs and alcohol, whatever it might be. Or he realizes for himself that there must be a way out. And then he goes and searches and seeks for that. So yes, I I think it's very valid to say that unless you yourself think that, you know what, I've had enough of this suffering, there has to be a way out. There's no point in telling a person that you are suffering. They have to see for themselves. And um, I can say from my own experience that there has been enough suffering in my life to motivate me through my journey to realize that there must be something out of this suffering. There must be a way out of this suffering. So I think people who don't have enough suffering should probably get a little bit more suffering to really come out of it. You know, To be able to say, you know, there's something going on here. There's, there, must be a, there must be something else I should do instead of continuing the same thing I'm doing and causing myself suffering. Yeah, I think uh,
9: uh, what you said that... Uh, the people are so attached to their own suffering also they don't want to really give it up I think there's a beautiful story they said that a lot of people they went to the God and they said that you have given us so much of suffering so he said that okay bring all your suffering and he created a huge hall and everyone came with their backs and then God said if you feel that your suffering is more Kindly pick up the bag, which you feel is the (laughs) left. And everyone pick their own bag. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's a good one.
10: So, about the Four Noble Truths. Second Noble Truth, cause of suffering, Uh, if I understood okay, is craving and aversion. So, then, for example, a pleasant feeling, nice pleasant feeling, with craving, there will be suffering. Right. Without craving, it's no suffering. It's just a pleasant feeling. Um, An unpleasant feeling, with craving, is suffering.
0: Yeah.
10: Without craving,
0: it's suffering.
10: No suffering. But it's dukkha of
0: dukkha. There's still dukkha of dukkha. Okay. Yeah, definitely. But how you relate to that will deal with whether you have more suffering or you know, you experience it right there. Like I said, you know, that feeling, that vedana of the painful feeling mm-hmm. is the karma that you've inherited right now. But how you choose to relate to it will either decide you add more to it or you let it dissipate. It's there and you have equanimity towards it and it dissipates. Definitely, I mean, the
10: suffering is much less without right. craving, a painful feeling without craving. Is, right. It's only the first arrow, no? Right, yeah. But, but still, it's one arrow, it still is considered dukkha. Yeah. Therefore, you can't no... escape dukkha. Okay, so then the Four Noble Truths are not the end of dukkha.
0: You can't escape dukkha in the form of bodily pain. Even the Buddha had bodily pain.
10: That's a big discussion. Do the arahats and buddhas still uh, experience Experience. dukkha or not? Yes.
0: They still experience bodily pain. They still experience unpleasant feeling. They still experience, you know, uh, let's say, the, the elements, like really hot weather or really cold weather or whatever, that's still dukkha. But the dukkha that we're talking about here is the dukkha in relation to the mind which causes further rebirth, which causes further coming into samsara and experiencing that kind of dukkha. So
10: it's a little bit of gray area there that uh, uh, translating dukkha. If you translate it like a mental suffering, yeah, I mean, Arahats and Buddhas are free of mental suffering. But if it's uh, translated... They are free of
0: suffering, but they're pain. not free of pain.
10: Yeah, pain. Mm-hmm. So, but in Pali, dukkha means both of them. Yeah. Pain yeah. So but uh, you know the
0: word Dukkha it's interesting, the word Dukkha actually denotes uh, you know the axle in, uh, in, in the wheel it's, it's unsturdy and so the wheel doesn't actually rotate properly so to, to let go of that kind of uh, or to correct that axle correct that wheel which is correcting your view coming to right view Prevents you from causing yourself further dukkha, or causing the mind further dukkha. But the pain, you know, it's primarily inescapable, generally inescapable, unless you're in anesthesia or you enter cessation. <laughs>
10: <laughs> Temporarily.
0: Yeah, that's right.
9: I think uh, when we use. Uh, the Hindi, hmm. I find that it becomes more clear. Mm-hmm. There's the word "dard" and "duk".
0: Dard and duk. Yes, they are two different things. Yeah, yeah. very yeah. true.
9: So I think uh, that is one. Yeah. And uh, even in English, also some people really selling, telling that the pain is inevitable, suffering, suffering is, is optional. optional. Yeah. So I think, uh, and that is very clear in when we read some of the stories in the Buddhism, yeah. like Angulimal, he was very badly beaten by the people when he became a disciple. Right. And Buddha asked him, do you have dukkha? He said, that, no. No. So I think uh, it's
0: yeah. mostly the mind. Yeah, that really clarifies it.
7: Yeah. Not, to, not to belabor the point, but there is an interesting study done on... Um, really experienced meditators like 10,000 to 50,000 hours, uh, Tibetan monks. And they basically applied a painful stimulus in the form of a, uh, um, a hot coil that was wrapped around their wrist, uh, with, with burning temperature water that went to actually burn their skin. And they let them know that the painful stimulus was coming with a little beep. And, uh, and then there was a control group of non-meditators, and in the non-meditators they found this large spike of an equivalent um, amplitude as when they were actually experiencing the pain before, when they knew the pain was coming, and then also afterwards when they were recalling how painful it was. And with the Tibetan meditators, they they experienced the same amount of pain amplitude when the stimulus came. In fact, that that amplitude was even a little bit higher. But there was absolutely no anticipation, and there was no um, there was no reaction afterwards. It was just experienced as it was, and then it
0: was gone. So that's like a uh, almost like a research into the two darts in that sense. The two right. arrows. Yeah. yeah.
7: You could see the the second dart
0: there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the mic there, please.
8: Hi, uh, so about suffering, uh, we spoke about how craving is a reason for suffering. I wonder if there are other reasons, for instance, inaction. To give a very simple example, someone needs a job, someone wants to get a job, but they are not working hard enough to get that job. So. Wanting to have a job is a basic need today, right? To have a life. Is it? Uh, how do they earn their livelihood
7: otherwise? Oh, okay.
8: Like, in that manner. like
7: yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean. Go.
0: <laughs> Please, go ahead.
8: So, yeah, so I just wonder if it's just craving that causes it. Because I see... Uh, so well, I, I mean, use examples like this back home where a lot of people are jobless yeah. and I see that they are just waiting for someone to just give them a job Yeah, instead of working hard. Yeah. At the same time, they suffer. And
0: yeah, but maybe they don't think they suffer. <laughs> That's the thing, right? They don't think they suffer. They, they're they like, I don't need a job. It's okay. I mean, in our mind, we might think that they're suffering, but if they're so comfortable not having a job and suffering the consequences... They don't feel like they're suffering. If they actually felt like they were suffering, that would motivate them to get a job. Right. So uh, you also, yeah. So craving is the the beginning point. But actually, when we now, when tomorrow, when we talk about dependent origination, what we'll see is we talk about ignorance, we talk about karmic sankharas, we talk about tainted consciousness, all of these different things. Because there's a little bit of craving in each of these links until there isn't. And then clinging and becoming, which lead to birth of action, or even an action, which leads to suffering.
8: Thank you.
11: I just want to ask uh, about the techniques for remembering past lives like I heard there's one where you enter the fourth jhana and then you do something and then you remember mm. um, but then you also mentioned you could get some glimpses of past lives in quiet mind and then the other technique that I had heard was basically a process of trying to progressively remember as far back as you can is it is a uh, I don't know, do do you have any comments on which one is most effective or or easiest?
0: So the one that you're talking about where you go into the fourth jhana and the third part, which is uh, going and remembering, progressively remembering previous uh, moments, those things are conjoined. So you actually go into the fourth jhana first and then you think back on, on the different moments in the day and then prior to that day, and so on and so forth. And then it rewinds into different lives uh, prior to this life, and so on. The one where you are in the quiet mind, that's like there's no intention of going in there. It just shows you glimpses. So you can't really do much about it. There have been people who do that, but then all they're doing is really distracting themselves and going to this and that, not really learning from it. But going into the fourth jhana, having great stability and equanimity allows you to remain anchored and then you know you don't get affected by those past memories and past lives. And remember what I told you yesterday and the day before as well. It's about seeing the underlying currents of karma and dependent origination. So the intention also of why you want to see them matters.
11: And how do you distinguish or can you distinguish between like how, how do you get a sense of knowing that that is indeed a past life, versus maybe it's just you're remembering a scene from a movie and you, and you don't realize it's mm. simply a movie you saw or something yeah. like that.
0: So I think uh, Venerable Metananda interviewed somebody about this. How can you tell what is the difference between a memory and your imagination? Do you remember this? Did I? Or, or maybe that was his imagination.
7: I mean, ontologically, you can't know for sure, right? But um, there's a qualitative difference.
0: Yeah. 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 Go ahead.
7: Well, I mean, the idea is like, you would just kind of know, it's just your intuition would kind of tell you, like, yeah, that was... I mean, generally, because
0: if I understood correctly from one of the interviews that you had, that one individual said, you can't really necessarily tell what's imagination and what's memory. Wasn't that...
7: Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: yeah. Do you yeah, remember him? now?
7: Yeah, I do. well... <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what you want me to say on that topic, but yeah. I, th- I think what you're getting at, like, memory and imagination, it's, it's using the same parts of the brain, so I mean, who really knows for sure, uh, like, ontologically? But I guess what really matters pragmatically is the, the lessons that you would gain from it. Yeah. And especially if you can see in that past life how it, like it's, how those choices have come to affect this life, then it can be pr- pretty eye-opening in terms of um, making sense of the situations that you're getting yourself into and just how karma works at the macro level as well as the micro level.
0: I think in other words that would also mean that there's a causality to it. In other words you see that this choice led to this choice and this choice led to that choice. I mean, even if it was a movie, you could realize, oh, I was watching that movie. It was because I made the choice to watch that movie, and maybe it wasn't actually what was going on. So you couldn't tell the difference, but you could still learn from what it is that you were seeing. The key there also is not to identify with that uh, past life memory, or if it's imagination, that imagination either. There have been people who have gone into it, and they've had to have deep forgiveness practice because they've, they've identified so much with that past life it's like I have to forgive myself for things I did in a past life so be careful
3: Uh, speaking about the review after meditation yeah or at the end of meditation and you had said it's not about intentionally remembering what occurred during the meditation sit and then six-houring things. It's just about if things arise at, during this little review period. Why is that? Why don't you intentionally go back and remember?
0: Well, the idea there is that you, you if you go intentionally uh, try to remember, you might not be able to actually recall it. But if you keep your mind open... A lot of the stuff that you missed out just sort of pops up like the patterns and the pictures and the shapes that are there that happen in that, that sort of uh, uh, dreamlike state of the eighth jhana when you're in quiet mind, neither perception nor non-perception. So the, here it's actually very similar to that idea of going into past lives. When you go into past lives or when you're recalling something, you're not intentionally trying to find it. You're just allowing the process to arise and you're just observing what's going on. So there's not any level of control whether it's past lives or recalling what happened in the meditation. It's just being open and just observing what arises.
3: I I have a practice daily in the evening or when I'm in bed where I review the day and bring up anything that has emotional attachments to it and then just release that but i explore going about it this way.
0: Yeah. I was just curious about, like, when
4: you were talking about the uh, sense of identity, you know, uh, to uh,
2: the body, and then you turned towards Metanantaji and talked about Botox.
0: I was just wondering if there's a backstory to that or something that... Oh, about the Botox thing? Right. Oh, you you, you turned towards Mithanandaji with the Botox thing. You
7: weren't here when you were talking about Botox? No, I, I got Botox. That's what
0: he was talking about. <laughs> This is why he looks so young. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's actually 60 years old. <laughs> uh, you weren't here when you were talking about Botox, I assume, then. Because he was talking about the benefits of smiling. you want to just repeat what you were talking about,
7: yeah, there was a study on people who had Botox that you know, inadvertently uplifted their mouth into more of a smile, and they were psychologically happy, um, psychologically happier as compared to a group that got Botox that didn't uplift the, the corners of their mouth. So <laughs> make of that what you will.
2: Question? Yeah. Um, like about going back... Uh, in, you know, into the past life or yeah. reviewing the meditation. Is sleep also
0: a, a valid ground to go back and maybe note down things? Cause, uh, you know, you mean like after before. you wake up, oh, yeah, uh, after, right? see what happened? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a useful practice. Because uh, a dream recall, for example, makes you more mindful, makes you more aware. I think that's a useful practice. Uh, for, this, like, for this retreat, for the seminar... Is it uh, something that you recommend? That uh, I mean, I would, I would leave it to everybody. Whoever wants to do it can do it. It's not such a huge aspect of it, but it can help sharpen your clarity and mindfulness, your ability to review what's, what's going on.
2: Sure. I have a question related to Sankara Dukkha. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, at what level one let goes of all the Sankara Dukkhas?
0: In so far as letting go of identification with the five aggregates, so that's uh, twofold. One is through self-view, that is sakayaditya, and second is through mana or conceit. So the first happens through stream entry, the second happens at arahatship.
2: Sometimes it's a bit difficult to find, difficult to recognize Sankaraduka Like for example. Uh, take the hot water sh- shower, and we did, we we don't know that we we are attached to hot water shower until we get the cold water,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's the vipari namaduka you're talking about, right? Or the sangharanduka?
2: There is a certain level of attachment as well, right?
0: To the hot water? Yeah. Or really? <laughs> it,
2: it happened to me and. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And I suddenly remembered your talk and you were saying that, oh, this I need to accept and I bathed with cold
0: water. (laughs) And so you had no more dukkha after that. (laughs) I tried that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Sankara dukkha is really that inherent um, identification with any process that causes further suffering. So that, that, that one is very, very subtle. So that's why you would start off with seeing the coarser things and start letting go of identifying with that and then coming to where is your self-image reside? I mean, if you want, you can make this an exercise and then write in a notebook and think who it is that you think you are. Right? Like, who am I? Who am I really? Who do I think I really am? And then write down all of these things, and you see for yourself, and then you look at one of those things, and you realize, I think I'm that because of so-and-so. And you realize, no, I'm actually not that. And then you think about this, and you, th- and you realize, I think I am that because of so-and-so. Like, you're not your name, you're not your form, you're not your job, you're not your uh, relationships you're not your family, you're not your... um, You know, all of the things that you think you are in relation to things, that's your self-image. And that can only be let go of as you start to really see for yourself. There's a wonderful sutta called Kemaka Sutta. And um, I I bring this up because for people who want to understand conceit and letting go of conceit, they can read that sutta. Kemaka is this old uh, monk who lives far from the rest of the community of Sangha. And uh, he's ill, actually. So he's keeping, he's quarantining himself, basically. And he has a caretaker. He has an attendant. And uh, the other monks say, we know Kemaka is an Arahat. And we want to know how it, he, he became an Arahat. So then the guy goes to Kemaka and says, they think that you're an Arahat. They want to know why you're an Arahat and all of these things. And there's this back and forth, the messenger goes back and forth. And finally, Kemaka says, you know what, enough. Let me go there and explain to them why I'm not an arahat. And so he goes to them and he explains to them that there are these five aggregates. And there is the view of the self in relation to these five aggregates. Insofar as that, I've let go of that. And then he gives certain kinds of um, analogies. Like the scent of a flower, for example. You know, that's still that residual scent is still there. That in, innate instinctive relating of a self to the aggregates is still present. But through consistent practice, through right effort, right mindfulness, and concentration, I have started to let go of that. And so he says, it is through consistent effort, through consistent practice that even that residual scent goes away. And then in teaching in that way, he becomes an arahan. He teaches himself into becoming an arahant. So the, the, the key to understanding that is keep mindful, keep becoming mindful, keep remembering to see how your mind is identifying with things. It might be difficult in the beginning. It might be challenging in the beginning. But as you get to deeper and subtler layers of what you think you are, who you think you are, you start to let go and let go and let go. Any last questions?
10: Um, Just where you were mentioning about uh, remembering past lives, um, what is important is the lessons uh, you get and you see uh, the consequences of the actions that uh, bring that. I mean, it uh, it occurred to me, I I have like this thought, uh, uh, wow, that sounds a lot to near-death experiences, near-death experiences when your life, goes through, you know, very quickly you relive your life and you say, oh, wow, that was terrible what I did. Uh, You know, it's kind of something like the same process, no?
0: Yeah, it is actually. Very similar to that. Actually, when a person is dying, what's going on there is that they are doing a life review period. And different interpretations are there about this. Like, for example, the bardos and things like that. But what's going on is as a person starts to respond to certain ways, they build up certain kinds of sankharas. And those sankharas uh, can bring about certain kinds of rebirth. So for someone who is fully awakened, they have no attachment, no identification, even with all of that whole life review process that happens. So because of that, there is no more fuel in the former of There is no craving, no aversion, no identification. Therefore, no new consciousness that arises that takes rebirth into a new life. Uh,
10: there's like a, some questions like, a, is it actually possible to eliminate,
0: eradicate, or
10: exhaust all the sankharas from countless past lives? I mean, it's well, very the key here,
0: yeah, the key here is not to eliminate the sankharas. The key here is not to eradicate the sankharas. The key here is to let go, and let the sankharas be replaced by more wholesome Sankaras. And then let go of that as well. Because the Sankaras will continue. So long as you are here with the mind and the body and everything else, Sankaras will continue. Yes, in cessation, there is a cessation of Sankaras. But it's the process of transformation of the Sankaras that we're doing here. You can't eliminate it. Uh, It can exhaust Sankaras can exhaust themselves through a process of non-reaction to karma.
10: Some tradition says that uh, when you stop reacting to sankaras, then the process of uh, arising sankaras accelerate and they're like, coming very quickly and you can actually exhaust them. totally.
0: Yeah, they they will stop arising at some point because there's no more uh, fuel for reaction to them. And uh, but the idea is not that you know, you, need to, you need to let go of all your karma or all your sankharas in order for you to attain full awakening, for example. What you have to let go is the fettered formations. This is what I call the abhi abhisankharas, karmic formations that are rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. Those are uh, exhausted, let go of. And the mind becomes empty of them. But the fully awakened mind still experiences sankharas as karmic formations due to past choices prior to full awakening. Which is why, for example, Angulimala experienced the sankharas in the form of pain when people beat him up for what he did in the past. Or when Moglana was beaten up and basically, you know, because of the stuff that he did in the past as well. So that, that part of that karma is not escapable, but it, is, it can be transformed it can be mitigated through your non-reaction to it, your non-identification with it. question. <laughs> yeah.
10: Uh, in some traditions, they say that the Sankanas, the karmic imprints, they are actually like a form. They are like energy. They are not mind. Mm. So what? what is the... Um,
0: the way I, I posit is, the, the, what I what I propose, the idea is that, and you'll see that in the book, is that sankharas, formations, are actually are uh, like uh, synapses in the brain. So you could do synaptic pruning, right? Based on certain actions and intentions that you continue to do, you will further strengthen those sankharas. But through non-action and non-reactivity, you weaken those sankharas. And the ones that you do do, in terms of the wholesome, those become stronger. I also posit the idea that uh, sankharas are also all of your genetic information. Right? Because the things that you experience in terms of your choices, your behaviors, even sometimes the diseases and you know underlying tendencies that you might have can arise from gene expression as well. So, in that sense, some cars can manifest not only in synapses but also in gene expression. Something related to that is epigenetics. Epigenetics, yeah.
2: expression.
0: That's right. And that's why the, the con... I mean, what you just said, and I'll just repeat, which is the epigenetics, that the external environment and external uh, stimulus... It could be a nuclear, it could be a toxic stimulus. Right. Right, exactly. And so that means that's why I was saying that the contact that is the, the mind and body making contact with the external world, or even internally uh, gives rise to feeling and perception and gives rise to intention. And those intentions drive forward certain kinds of sankharas. So contact also gives rise to certain sankharas dependent upon what kind of contact is there with that environment.
6: While we are on the topic of past life and next life, would you give give a more pragmatic and scientific viewpoint on that in relation to what Buddha says?
0: Well, I would say that you don't need to believe in past lives. Nobody here is telling you that you need to believe in past lives. It's from a, a person's own subjective experience that they see that there are past lives. But you think about your own life, your identity as you are, is multiple. You were a certain person when you were a little infant. You were a certain kind of character when you were a little child. You were a certain kind of character when you were a teenager. And now you're a certain kind of person when you are in your youth. And you'll be a certain kind of person as you mature and then as you get older. You live multiple lives in one life itself. That's one way of looking at it as well. So when we talk about rebirth, we talk about rebirth as rebirth of consciousnesses in one life, or rebirth as of identities in one life. But then people can extrapolate that and say that it happens from one life to another life as well. But I don't say that anyone needs to believe in that part. There's no there's it that's not a requirement at all for you to do the practice. You will get to that experience if you want to, if you intend to look at that experience. But that experience is purely Subjective.
6: Also, a lot of uh, importance is given on the fact that uh, there's a karmic, um, what's the right word for that? Consequence that will happen in the next life.
0: Oh yeah, yeah.
6: Uh, This also relates to the same question. While it's important to lead a good life while you're here, uh, the karmic part of it. In a slightly pragmatic viewpoint, please.
0: Yeah, I think the Buddha actually addressed this as well. I remember you telling me about this. Can you, can you explain?
7: Yeah, so... Um, when the Buddha was asked about this, he said... You know, basically... Whether you believe it or not, it, it's... Uh, If you act as if you're gonna have future lives, you'll be happier in this life because you'll make wholesome choices that lead to happiness. And um, if it just so happens that you live beyond that, you'll be very, very glad that you made those decisions as well. So from a pragmatic standpoint, it's like, why risk it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) There was this, there was this wise Chilean uh, martial arts master. I was, I was working on his farm uh, for a month, and I asked him if he thought there was life after death. And he said, Better be prepared, live. So I kind of like that. I mean.
0: So you're kind of hedging your bets. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, satisf- it's satisfying to just have a wholesome life for the fact that you're having a wholesome life. That's more than enough. But uh, trying to figure out what the consequences of that in the future life and things like that. You know, the Buddha talked about karma in the sense of thinking about karma in terms of the past and the future really doesn't have any fruit. But thinking about how to deal with the consequences of your actions or even the experiences that you're having in the present, that's what really matters. How do you deal with that in every given moment? There's a sutta called the Sivaka Sutta where the Buddha talks about that. He says, A lot of people talk about, you know, this was because of past actions and past karma and things like that. And he says, How do you truly know that? Because there are the other factors, in, including the environment, including other people's choices, your own health, uh, the climate, uh, accidents, you know, all of these other factors are there. How you choose to deal with that in that present moment is what matters.
7: Uh,
6: the fact uh, what um, Venerable Metananda just said that thinking that you may have a next life leads you to lead a more wholesome life really cuts through all the clutter sure
7: and to your earlier question it also might add more meaning to your life in a sense or just being open to that possibility right because alright let's just say From a purely pragmatic standpoint, there's really like, let's say, four possibilities uh, for what happens after death. You could, it could be possible that you become this eternal uh, Brahman or you're in this eternal heaven. Um, That's possible. It's possible that you could, that nothing happens, that just like the lights go out. Um, It's as if you were never born and there's no experience uh, the third possibility is that it's some something wacky that we can't even imagine with our limited human minds, like we, we can't even conceive of whatever this third option is. And then the fourth option is what the Buddha taught, which is that you're, there's cause and effect that continues at the macro level, um, and that seems like a that seems like the odds of that are like definitely non-zero. And so if there's even a, if there's even a like five percent chance that that's true um, that would be that would be worth it even if there's a one percent chance that'd be worth having that view or keeping that in mind but I think it's much higher than that
0: yeah yeah the last few questions now
1: You uh, saw again getting deep. Uh, but, um, so uh, I just want to ask that uh, well, uh, what would you suggest is the best way to uh, start reading and uh, you know to start essentially understanding the Suttas uh, I, I have read a few of them although it's in like single uh, digit numbers which I've read them and uh, another thing which I've also heard is that I think that uh, because of the way they, they were essentially passed on by word of mouth I think one or two of them are not in line with, with some of the others of them and uh, so, like, like, what would you recommend is the best best way f- for, for someone starting out, you know, to read them and to understand them?
0: Yeah. Um, I would say, first and foremost, that when you approach reading the suttas, uh, you should definitely go for the Majjhima Nikaya, because that one has, like, all of the different components of the Buddha's practice, like, in terms of uh, ethics, in terms of meditation, in terms of wisdom in terms of dependent origination, the Four Noble Truths, and so on. So, Nikaya is a really good starting point. You don't want to start from the first Sutta. That's a very, very, very uh, complicated Sutta to read. Uh, you might want to start off with the practical aspects of the Suttas, like, for example, anything related to meditation, and anything related to mindfulness, and how to apply mindfulness. The one Sutta would be of course, the, um, which one is that, Majuminikaya Nikaya 10, which is uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, shows you how to apply mindfulness. Uh, another one could be, which is what we're going to be doing tomorrow, we'll see how it goes, when, how you guys take it. But in my view, I think Majuminikaya Nikaya 9 is really good too, which is the Samaditi Sutta, a Sutta on right view. Uh, then Maha Sutta which talks about the Buddha's journey and how he got enlightenment uh, things like that um, the the other one that I would recommend is uh, the one that we did which was uh, 10, 107 I think it was Ganaka because that shows the full path there are a few suttas like that which show like the full path of how to lead the practice how to lead a self retreat let's say um, that would be the starting point. Which is the, last
6: one said?
0: the one that I read a couple of days ago, 107, Ganaka Moglana Sutta. Yeah, that's the Sigala Vada Sutta, Sigala which is Digha Nikaya 31. Yeah. Digha Nikaya DN 31.
7: if you're a gambling man, I guess it's kind of fun sometimes to just open yeah. the book to a sutta and then, I don't know, you might find it's the one you need.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Samyana uh, Falasutta. I mean, that's a long one. That's a really long one. But uh, that points out the, that's the Nikaya 2. Samanya Falasutta, which is the fruits of the holy life. Because that's uh, Ananda uh, speaking saying
6: Right, right. because it's a it's a grievous consequence of misrepresenting the Buddha. For example, it could have
0: they could have begun the same thes thus this was said. Right. But is it thus I have heard. Well the tradition <laughs> No, the, the tradition says that uh, that Ananda was present for most of this, uh, most of the Buddha's uh, discourses. And before he became an attendant, he ha- had some um, conditions. And one of the conditions was that if the Buddha was somewhere and he was giving a discourse and then he was not there, that the Buddha would have to repeat that discourse to him. And Ananda was said to have a photographic memory. So everything that you read in terms of the suttas is his narration of what he read, I mean what he heard, or where he... Uh, Actually saw and heard what the Buddha gave in terms of a discourse. So thus have I heard, is Ananda saying, "I have heard this from the Buddha," or "I have seen the Buddha." You know, but that's an interesting interpretation as a disclaimer. (laughs) Yeah, that's Majjhima Nikaya thirty-six, I think, Sutta. Well, I mean, I'm reading from, um, you know, the Nikayas, which are translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, those are the ones that I use generally. So, as far as I know, he's translated uh, the Majjhima Nikaya, the Samyutta Nikaya, and the Anguttara Nikaya. Also, the Sutta Nipata. Uh, when you get more advanced in this, the Sutta Nipata is just really great to, to read. The Metta Sutta from the Sutta Nipata is really good. Sutta Nipata 1.8, which is the Metta Sutta. Um, that's also translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. The Dikinikaya, which I read from, was translated by Maurice Walsh. It's a little different in terms of its uh, its wording, but it's a it's one of the better translations. As far as the Kuta I don't think there are any any um, full translations of the Kuttaka Nikhaya. Because even though they're known as the minor discourses, they would take up an entire bookshelf of books. It's just really large. But within that, there are some sections which have been translated, like the Dhammapada, for example. I don't know if bodhi has done a translation of the Dhammapada, but uh, yeah. Bodhi is pretty good with the translations. Excellent, actually. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, we when we look at the Abhidhamma, uh, there's a lot of good things in there in terms of breaking down, um, you know, the things related to consciousness, breaking down how mind works, the cetasikas, and things like that. But I, I, I'll be honest: when I read the Abhidhamma, I was really bored. <laughs> I like the suttas better because of the juice of it. You know, it's there's a story to it, and there's like a structure to it. So those who want to read the Abhidhamma, I mean, they can. I mean, there's a compendium of the Abhidhamma that was translated by Bodhi which was called oh, I forgot now but it's one of those. Uh, he's, done, he's done some translations on the manual of the abhidhamma. But before you get into the abhidhamma, probably start with the suttas. And uh, the Vinaya is interesting too. There's some really interesting sutras, uh, sorry, stories in the Vinaya. The one that strikes me the best we talk about this is uh, there's this guy named uh, Yasa. This is the last thing I'll say, okay guys? And then we'll share some merit. I know it's getting late. But there's this guy, uh, Yasa. And he, uh, he uh, was... He, well, okay, so he had a great big party in his house. And this is like the aftermath of the party. And he's like hungover and just like wish he never had that party. And there's like people just slobbering. And there's just like people here on the couch. And other person's there on the floor drunk and in his own vomit. And just like crazy after party kind of scene. And so he decides he wants to go take a walk. And he takes a walk in the park. And he sees the Buddha over there. And so he sits by the Buddha. And the Buddha gives him a discourse. Just goes through the whole path, goes through about ethics and samadhi and everything, and then Yasa becomes a stream enter. And then Yasa is just walking around, and then he, and then he, he, you know, his father comes looking for him, and he goes to the Buddha, and he says, "Have you seen my son, Yasa?" And the Buddha says, "Never mind that. Come sit down." And he gives him that same discourse, and then his father becomes a stream enter, and then Yasa becomes an arahat. Listening to the same discourse again. So, the moral of the story is you know, you could always go to the same sutta and still learn new things. You'd always go to the same Dhamma talk and still learn new things as your experience and as your practice deepens. All right. Let's share some merit.